Chapters 1 to 4 of Demonarchia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Demonarchia by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Aurelia Henry Reinhardt. Book 1. Whether Temporal Monarchy is Necessary for the Well-Being of the World. The Monarchy of Dante Alighieri. Chapter 1. Introduction. All men on whom the higher nature has stamped the love of truth should especially concern themselves in laboring for posterity, in order that future generations may be enriched by their efforts as they themselves were made rich by the efforts of generations past. For that man who is imbued with public teachings but cares not to contribute something to the public good is far in arrears of his duty let him be assured he is indeed not a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season but rather a destructive whirlpool always engulfing and never giving back what it has devoured often meditating with myself upon these things lest i should some day be found guilty of the charge of the buried talent i desire for the public weal not only to burgeon but to bear fruit and to establish truths unattempted by others for he who should demonstrate again a theorem of Euclid, who should attempt after Aristotle to set forth anew the nature of happiness, who should undertake after Cicero to defend old age a second time, what fruit would such a one yield? None, forsooth, his tedious superfluousness would merely occasion disgust. Now, inasmuch as among other abstruse and important truths, knowledge of temporal monarchy is most important and most obscure, and inasmuch as the subject has been shunned by all because it has no direct relation to gain therefore my purpose is to bring it out from its hiding-place that i may both keep watch for the good of the world and be the first to win the palm of so great a prize for my own glory verily i undertake a difficult task and one being beyond my powers but my trust is not so much in my own worth as in the light of the giver that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 To what end does government exist among all men? First, we must ascertain what temple monarchy is in its idea, as I may say, and in its purpose. Temple monarchy, called also the empire, we define as a single principality, extending over all peoples in time, or in those things and over those things which are measured by time. Concerning it, three main questions arise. First, we may ask and seek to prove whether it is necessary for the well-being of the world. Secondly, whether the Roman people rightfully appropriated the office of monarchy. And thirdly, whether the authority of monarchy derives from God directly, or from another, a minister or vicar of God. But as every truth which is not a first principle is manifested by the truth of some first principle, it is necessary in every investigation to know the first principle to which we may return in analysis for the proof of all propositions which are subsequently assumed. And as the present treatise is an investigation, we must before all else search out a basic principle, on the validity of which will depend whatever follows. Be it known, therefore, that certain things exist which are not at all subject to our control, and which we can merely speculate upon, but cannot cause to be or to do such are the mathematics physics and divinity 
On the other hand, certain things exist which are subject to our control and which are matter not only for speculation but for execution. In these things, the action is not performed for the sake of the speculation, but the latter for the sake of the former, because in them action is the end, since the matter and the consideration is governmental, nay, is the very source and first principle of right government, and since everything governmental is subject to our control, it is clear that our present theme is primarily adapted for action rather than for speculation. Again, since the first principle and cause of all actions is their ultimate end, and since the ultimate end first puts the agent in motion, it follows that the entire procedure of the means toward an end must derive from the end itself. For the manner of cutting wood to build a house will be other than that of cutting wood to build a ship. So if there exists an end for universal government among men, that end will be the basic principle through which all things to be proved hereafter may be demonstrated satisfactorily. But to believe that there is an end for this government and for that government and that there is no single end common to all would indeed be irrational. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 To actualize the whole capacity of the possible intellect in speculation and action We must now determine what is the end of human society as a whole and having determined that, we shall have accomplished more than half of our labour, according to the philosopher in his writings to Nicomachus. In order to discern the point in question more clearly, observe that as nature fashions the thumb for one purpose, the whole hand for another, then the arm for a purpose differing from both, and the entire man for one differing from all, so she creates for one end the individual, for another the family, for another the village, for still another the city, for another the kingdom, and finally for an ultimate end by means of his art, which is nature, the eternal God brings into being the human race in its totality. And this last is what we are in search of as the directive first principle of our investigation. In beginning, then, let it be recognized that God and nature make nothing in vain, but that whatever comes into being comes with a definite function. For according to the intention of the Creator, as Creator, the ultimate end of a created being is not the being itself, but its proper function. Wherefore, a proper function exists not for the sake of the being, but contrariwise. There is then some distinct function for which humanity as a whole is ordained, a function which neither an individual, nor a household, neither a village, nor a city, nor a particular kingdom has power to perform. What this function is will be evident if we point out the distinctive capacity of humanity as a whole. I say, therefore, that no faculty shared by many things diverse in species is the differentiating characteristic of any one of them. For since the differentiating characteristic determines species, it would follow that one essence would be specific to many species, which is impossible. So the differentiating characteristic in man is not simple existence, for that is shared by the elements nor existence in combination, for that is met with in minerals, nor existence animate, for that is found in plants, nor existence intelligent, for that is participated in by the brutes. But the characteristic competent to man alone and to none other above or below him is existence intelligent through the possible intellect. Although other beings possess intellect, it is not intellect distinguished by potentiality as is man's. Such beings are intelligent species in a limited sense, and their existence is no other than the uninterrupted act of understanding. They would otherwise not be eternal. 
It is evident, therefore, that the differentiating characteristic of humanity is a distinctive capacity or power of intellect. And since this capacity as a whole cannot be reduced to action at one time through one man, or through any one of the societies discriminated above, multiplicity is necessary in the human race in order to actualize its capacity in entirety. Likewise, multiplicity is necessary in creatable things, in order to exercise continually the capacity of primal matter. Were it not so, we should be granting the existence of unactualized potentiality, which is impossible. With this belief, Averos accords in his commentary on the treatise concerning the soul. Further, the intellectual capacity of which I speak has reference not only to universal forms or species, but by a sort of extension to particular ones. Wherefore, it is a common saying that the speculative intellect becomes by extension the practical, whose end is to do and to make. I speak of things to be done which are controlled by political sagacity, and things to be made which are controlled by art, because they are all handmaids of speculation, that supreme end for which the primal good brought into being the human race. From this now grows clear the saying in the politics that the vigorous in intellect naturally govern other men. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 To attain this end, humanity requires universal peace. It has now been satisfactorily explained that the proper function of the human race, taken in the aggregate, is to actualize continually the entire capacity of the possible intellect, primarily in speculation, then through its extension and for its sake, secondarily in action, and since it is true that whatever modifies a part modifies the whole, and that the individual man seated in quiet grows perfect in knowledge and wisdom, it is plain that amid the calm and tranquillity of peace the human race accomplishes most freely and easily its given work. How nearly divine this function is revealed in the words, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, whence it is manifest that universal peace is the best of those things which are ordained for our beatitude. And hence did the shepherd sounded from on high the message not of riches, nor pleasures, nor honours, nor length of life, nor health, nor beauty, but the message of peace. For the heavenly host said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. Likewise, peace be unto you was the salutation of the Saviour of men. It befitted the Supreme Saviour to utter the Supreme Salutation. It is evident to all that the disciples desired to preserve this custom, and Paul likewise in his words of greeting. From these things which have been expounded, we perceive through what better, nay, through what best means the human race may fulfil its proper office. Consequently, we perceive the nearest way through which may be reached the universal peace toward which all our efforts are directed as their ultimate end, and which is to be assumed as the basic principle of subsequent reasoning. This principle was necessary, as we have said, as a predetermined formula into which, as into a most manifest truth, must be resolved all things needing to be proved. End of chapter 4